Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Mark Lutter, founder and executive director of the Center for Innovative Governance Research. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Mark, why don't you start with a little bit of background of how you got into the innovative governance or charter cities movement and how your thoughts have evolved over the time you've been involved in space. Sure. So my first introduction was at a conference. Uh, I believe I was 21. I had just graduated from college. And during that conference, um, there was a talk by Ben Powell, who briefly mentioned somebody named Michael Van Notten, who was trying to build uh, what he was calling a free city in Somaliland, Somaliland being the northeastern part of Somalia. And this story basically caught my attention. It was it was more or less a throwaway line in the entire presentation, but I took that and started Googling and followed that down the rabbit hole just because the idea made intuitive sense to me. And so afterwards, I contacted Spencer McCollum, who edited Michael Van Notten's book, uh, because Michael Van Notten died of, of natural causes in between the time he was trying to start the Free City and the publication of his book, he, which was in, the book was published, I believe, in 2005. And Spencer McCollum edited the book, and he lives in a small town in Mexico. So I went and visited him there and basically started going down the, the, the rabbit hole, mostly in the, the libertarian space of the charter cities movement. And so broadly, I believe there can be thought of as these two separate paths within the, 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 the charter cities, the innovative governance space, one being Paul Romer and the charter cities, two, what might be called the techno-libertarian side, which is probably best exemplified by Patrick Friedman in the Seasteading Institute. And so Spencer McCollum was part of the old school techno-libertarian side, he actually helped with Operation Atlantis and I believe the Republic of Minerva as well, which are these two libertarian uh, new country projects in the late 60s, early 70s that were both massive boondoggles. So after that, I, I, ran, I did a PhD in economics at George Mason University. I spent some time living in Honduras, which, at, which has charter cities legislation on the books, so they haven't yet publicly approved any projects. And... My ideas evolved more or less because being in this space and seeing some of the, the previous efforts that weren't particularly successful and seeing some of the rhetoric as well as some of the content being used, as well as learning more just about institutions, about governance and what those look like, I, I've become a lot more, I guess you might want to call it moderate in terms of how I think about these ideas and how I think they can be applied. Uh, so for example, Within the, the techno-libertarian space, there's a large, right, I guess, Peter Thiel influence, as well as what might be called the, described as the David Friedman influence, where people are enthusiastic about these, right, like using insurance agencies to provide uh, a lot of services that are traditionally thought of as government. Well, to me, it makes the most sense, okay, right, building a charter city is an incredibly complex project. 
And so rather than trying to invent these new forms of governance, why not just use existing best practices? Because in most places around the world, existing best practices provide a substantial improvement to the, the current governance on the ground, and it, it doesn't make sense to add in these additional elements of risk. And so I launched the Center for Innovative Governance Research approximately a little over a year ago, and what I saw was basically that there were a lot of people and groups that were taking these basically independent siloed approaches to charter cities, to innovative governance. So on one hand, for example, you have entrepreneurs, particularly in Silicon Valley, who are very excited about these ideas, but they are mostly talking to each other. And so uh, w- one example, we have Y Combinator, who, who started their new cities project about two and a half years ago. And first it was, we're going to build a new city, and then it was, we're going to research a new city. And now it's not clear what exactly is happening with the project. You have Sidewalk Labs, which is building this um, Bayside area in Toronto, where originally it was, we're going to build a new city. And now it's basically, we're going to redevelop this area, this sort of industrial area by a, by a canal and put a bunch of sensors in. And so on some margins, it's an interesting project, but I think it's also not nearly as ambitious as it could have been and as it was formulated at the beginning. And so in addition to the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, you also have what might be described as technocrats, which are economists, lawyers, who are much more mainstream, less entrepreneurial. But for example, right, Paul Romer just won a Nobel Prize in economics. He was the originator of the, the Charter Cities idea. And he, he, he gave a TED Talk when he had the idea. He didn't publish it in an academic journal because you don't get career points for talking about these ideas as an economist because there isn't really any data and and so because of that there's a lot of latent interest in the economist community as well as in in my experience sort of the the legal community too that can be brought out if with the right coaxing in addition you have new city projects there are a number of these new city projects that are basically building for 100,000 plus residents sometimes satellite cities sometimes new cities that are beginning to think about governance because it would boost their land prices you have the investors who are looking for right capital. Uh, there's a lot of capital flowing around the world right now. So investors are looking for opportunities. You have the humanitarian community in Europe, particularly with the refugee crisis, that's beginning to think about refugee cities as a mechanism to lower, reduce refugee flows by offering opportunities in countries where the, the, the crises are, are occurring. And so the Center for Innovative Governance Research, our goal is to, to create the ecosystem within which we can elevate the conversation to make these other groups aware of each other so they can start embarking on these projects and start really executing on the ground. That's awesome. A few things there. One is, why do you think that YC, Sidewalk Labs, et cetera, you know, have these big ambitions and then sort of what do you make of what happened there? So I think it's, it's, there, there's a few things. Charter cities have three elements that are each extremely complex. One, you have the real estate element where you're basically building a new city, right? And so this requires hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. It's a little bit different from a traditional startup where you can just put three people in a basement for six months, you have a minimum viable product. And so Silicon Valley is only recently basically discovering the world of atoms. You look at the most successful companies, it's right, uh, probably... Tesla, SpaceX, which are both essentially Elon Musk, and then you have WeWork and a few others, for example, Boom. But by and large, the the sort of foray of Silicon Valley into 
the world of atoms is relatively recent and real estate provides sort of a whole other dimension on that front too, right? And that's only one part of a charter city. The other part of a charter city is uh, the, the other two parts. One is politics and then two is governance. So politics, you need to negotiate with the host country for legal autonomy. And Silicon Valley, I think, is only beginning to basically figure out and, and deal with, with politics. And as a metric of that, you can look at just, for example, right, Silicon Valley is, pro- is about comparable. It's a little bit less in terms of total GDP than the, the, the New York area. But every presidential administration, for example, right, draws from the New York area in terms of usually it's uh, senior executives at banks. And those tend to fill certain spots in presidential administrations. And we haven't seen any similar flow of senior Silicon Valley executives, whether VCs or whether in companies like Facebook, flow to presidential administrations. And I think that's just a metric that can be used as a sort of proxy for political understanding. And that flows into, um, right, okay, if you want a charter city, you need to negotiate with the host country for legal autonomy. So say, get the host country to pass a law that says within this geographic area, XYZ laws don't apply and you can basically do whatever you want in terms of commercial legal framework. That takes its own set of knowledge and understanding. And I think Silicon Valley is still learning that. And then the third challenge, basically governance. It's okay, even if you get the real estate right, and even if you get the politics right, you still need to create a governing framework within which a lot of people can live. And so that's that's another really tricky thing that hasn't, right, it's been done on different margins, but I don't think Silicon Valley has really fully understood the the, the scale and the challenge of that, which has led to the the lack of success. And then I think part of it is just this relative unawareness of new city projects going on around the world. So Eric Schmidt recently did a uh, conversation with Tyler Cow in the podcast, where he mentioned that not a lot of people are building new cities around the world. And I emailed Tyler, I was like, I can introduce him to a few, because depending on how you want to count, um, the New Cities Foundation in their Greenfield Cities Alliance has about 40 members of these Greenfield cities around the world. There's a journalist, he wrote a book called uh, Ghost Cities. His estimate is that they're, oh, Wade, Wade, Wade Shepherd. Wade Shepherd is, is his name. His estimate is that there's about 200 Greenfield cities being planned around the world. And these are right. These aren't just natural city growth. These are explicitly master-planned development projects. Presumably, Google's research team is relatively good, but it's not so good that Eric Schmidt is just generally unaware of this trend and of this phenomenon, and so they're unable to really study it and and, and understand the the existing best practices and figure out how to improve on them. We uh, we hosted that Eric Schmidt talk. So next time uh, we'll have to bring you so you can uh, talk to him about it. Yeah, that that would be fantastic. So, so zooming out a bit, when you were or going back, when you were 21, you just discovered Charter Cities, was this 2008? Was this like pre-seasteading or when was this? No, this was post. So I graduated college in 2010. So it would have been the summer 2010 where I heard of it. I suspect I was aware of seasteading because I was in libertarian circles at the time. But I don't remember ever really thinking like seasteading, this is it. There was a very moment that I still distinctly remember that sent me on the track at this conference because several, like a month later, I went to, I, so I emailed Spencer McCullum, who, who I mentioned previously, and I, I wanted to sort of just chat and learn more about like, right, his, his work. And his response was, oh, I'm, I'm living in Mexico, you should come visit. And so I thought, okay, 
old strange men on the internet inviting me to Mexico. What could go wrong? And so I booked the ticket and stayed with him in Casas Grandes for about three weeks. Uh, I mean, seasteading was a thing at the time in charter cities. Paul Romer had recently given his TED Talk. But my introduction was very much this sort of, I guess, distinct third way that was tangentially related to those ideas, but not directly so. For the, uh, for the zooming out a bit, for the, for the audience who's sort of new to the idea, why don't you unpack both some of, some of the terms, terminology, you know, charter cities, special economic zone, et cetera, and then perhaps a little bit of the, uh, the history of the movement. You, you briefly mentioned your early libertarians, obviously seasteading what you know, mistakes they made uh, in special economic zones as well. Sure. So a special economic zone is any territory within which the some laws, a set of laws of the host country do not apply. And so that could be right lower taxes or that could be an export processing zone where you don't have to pay um, import duties for certain goods before you assemble them and ship them out. It could be a, a host of different things. And a charter city can be thought of as a special economic zone on steroids. And so what that means is rather than thinking, okay, there's a set of laws, a set of legislation, and let's think on what margins can we use to improve them. Instead, a charter city asks, okay, let's start from scratch. What does a best-in-class legal system look like in this country with these um, environmental business constraints? What does that system look like? And then let's build it from scratch. Other important distinctions are Charter City is a city, and so it has a much larger geographic area than most special economic zones. Charter cities include residential, and they tend to be multi-industry. Most special economic zones focus on single industries, for example, uh, uh, garment manufacturing. Three, a charter city has a distinct administrative body that is able to adapt as changes occur on the ground. And most special economic zones, they have a regulatory body but the regulatory body is quite constrained within which the improvements they can make. So one frequent example is a one-stop shop in which if a country has a lot of business regulations in the special economic zone, they create a a single shop, the one-stop shop, where you can get all of the relevant permits. While a charter city, instead of doing that, instead of saying that sort of simplify and expedite that permitting process, it's saying, why does that permitting process really exist in the first place? Can we get rid of some of these permits instead of just sort of simplifying the application process maybe getting rid of them or, or, or really right, creating a framework that's, that's more flexible and much more conducive to uh, long-term economic development. And, and you also asked about the history of the movement. So more recently, there is sort of these two separate strands, being the, the techno-libertarian seasteading side, right? The Seasteading Institute was founded in 2008 by Patrick Friedman, and the other guy, I think his name was uh, Wayne Gramlich. And their initial idea was let's go build basically a new city international waters so we can experiment with governance and push the frontier of, okay, the U.S. government works reasonably well, but there's a lot of margins on which that can be improved. And how can we push those margins and what does that look like? Some early mistakes, I think, were just that it was relatively tone deaf. And so early articles that were focusing on the Seasteading Institute would often read something along the lines of, libertarian billionaires, because Peter Thiel was an early um, donor to the Seasteading Institute. So libertarian billionaires want to build floating islands to avoid paying taxes. And I think that harmed its effectiveness in really communicating the message to this wider group of people. 
And so one of the, the lessons I think of sort of economics is successful institutional change requires the allegiance of the ruling elite. And so in Silicon Valley, there's this, been this idea of disruption where, right, you create a company and you don't need to ask for permission and all of that's well and good when you're existing within this legal framework that allows you to do that. But when you're asking government to change the legal framework, then you can't just give them the middle finger and right, start your own country. You, know, you have to work with them, understand what their needs are. And um, I think early seasteading positioned itself in such a way that really harmed a lot of those potential conversations. Since then, they've effectively rebranded and are now, I mean, the, the book got a positive reviews by both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and they're focusing a lot on how seasteading could help um, victims of climate change. So I think there are a lot of positives in, in how they've done that. Other sort of strands relevant in the history of, of the, the movement, you have Paul Romer, who gives his TED Talk in 2009. He is working with, at one point, the president of Madagascar, and it seems as though they are likely to get legislation passed or at least proposed when, at that time, there is basically a coup in Madagascar. It's unclear to what extent Paul's involvement precipitated the coup. It seems relatively unlikely. The primary cause of, of the coup was that there was, I mean, a coup might be too strong of a word, but the primary cause was basically that the president was giving a lot of land to a South Korean company called Daewoo Manufacturing Land, and there were wide-scale protests, and then some of the, the president's guards opened fire, so it was just a very ugly situation all around. The second place where Paul Romer was involved was in Honduras, and there they did get legislation passed. Paul later had a falling out with the Honduran government. There's a lot of sort of details in the story that both both sides were accused the other side of not very nice things. The Honduras legislation was later stuck, struck down by the Supreme Court. It was changed and then passed again. And so there is still charter cities legislation on the books in Honduras. There were several libertarian projects that were down there, including Patrick Friedman, who raised a, a, some money to go down there. But he, that was during the first batch of legislation. The, the, the second batch of legislation brought a second wave of companies. But so far, no companies have been publicly approved by the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices, which is the regulatory body that approves charter cities called the ZEDES, Zona de Empleo y Desarrollo Económico. Recently, there have been some uh, positive rumors coming out of Honduras, but it remains too early to see whether these will emerge into meaningful something meaningful or whether it's simply another uh, false start. What is Paul Romer doing right now? He's basically dropped out of the space. Um, he won the Nobel Prize about a month ago. I don't know. I've been trying to get him back involved, though I haven't had any luck. And in my contact with people who are work closely with him, they tell me that he is working on his own projects and has effectively lost interest in charter cities, or at least like for his the time that he's spending, it's it's a negligible portion of his time. Yeah, and seasteading also, you know, in addition to sort of their approach, or part of their approach also included, you know, their belief that being the ocean as the sort of the new frontier, and also I, I believe sort of an interest in medical tourism as potentially the killer the killer app. What, what do you what do you think of of, of those approaches? I, I don't think those are the right approaches. So, for example, just building floating platforms is expensive. And so the Seasteading Institute, they shifted their strategy from building in open waters to building in protected waters and negotiating a what they call a sea zone within those protected waters. 
medical tourism, I think that's one potential killer app, but I wouldn't necessarily think that that's the first generation that you want to do because no matter how you do it, if you do it right, one, medical tourism industry is already quite competitive. So it's unclear what exactly advantage a CSTED would have. The, the sort of obvious answer is that it would have some type of regulatory arbitrage. But no matter how you do that, you're going to get a lot of negative attention. And if you're building in uh, territorial waters or if you're building, like working with a host country, getting that negative attention is very damaging to the reputation and to the, the politics of having that degree of legal autonomy. And so that's, that's not the, what, where, where I'd start. I think what's been missing to a large extent from the sort of, right, like not just seasteading, but the Silicon Valley approach is just looking at where new cities are being built, right? There's about 70 million new urban residents annually. They're concentrated in Africa and Asia. And so these people are naturally moving to cities. New cities need to be built and they are being built. So instead of trying to create this, right, like whole new floating thing, just figure, okay, people are already building cities, just partner with them to improve governance. It's a much more marginal approach instead of thinking, okay, like what's the medical tourism? It's instead thinking, okay, how, what, what is the best practices of um, doing business? So doing things like making it very easy and, and cheap to legally register a business, having a trusted and efficient court system. These are things that are agreed upon basically throughout the political spectrum as important, especially to economic development. Don't try to reinvent the wheel, just focus on those best practices and work with countries that are willing to embrace them and want the increase in jobs, increase in foreign direct investment, increase in productivity. And then maybe the second and third generation, you can start branching out and experimenting with some of these new forms of governments. But you really need to build up the, the reputation and build up the, the, the ability to do that rather than starting at one, right? You need to, you need, you need, you need to scale up. And I think that's been a strategic error in the space. And that's one that we at the center uh, are trying to correct for. Do you worry about being perhaps too moderate or too incremental? For example, in, in healthcare, one of the big criticisms is that no one's building outside the current system. And as a result, there's no true disruption. It's all just serving the existing system, which, you know, making it worse in some way. And, and the best way when you're building, you know, digital products is to, is to not attack Google or, you know, Facebook head on, but to build sort of a totally different use case do you worry about too moderate of, a, of an approach or how do you square that? No, I mean, the, the test is going to be to what extent are countries willing to pass legislation that allows for charter cities. And I don't think, right, it's, it might be incremental compared to what seasteading envisioned. But in D.C., this is extremely radical. What is the incremental version in Silicon Valley in D.C. is light years ahead of everybody else. And so, for example, when I talk to people at the World Bank, they're all quite, they're, they're usually skeptical. There, there's some interest, but I keep hearing, oh, I can think of 15 ways why this won't work. And so a lot of it is basically different audiences that we're trying to engage and that we're trying to sort of build a community around these sets of ideas. And I think, right, one, we're not trying to start with disrupting healthcare. I mean, building a charter city that has substantial legal autonomy from the host country I think is enough of a disruption. And for example, if we're focusing in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and we have one project we're working relatively closely with and another one in the pipeline down there, I, I think there is a huge amount of potential improvement that it takes, for example, on average, over 46% of per capita income 
just to legally register a business in sub-Saharan Africa. And so if we can create a city where it only takes, right, like 1% of per capita income in one day to legally register a business, that's a huge improvement that adds a tremendous amount of value. And I think that's, that's something that's a, a very worthy goal. I want to hear more about sort of the, the pitch to different constituents as it relates to the charter city movement. So one perhaps is, um, you know, existing governments. What, what's, what's the, uh, the pitch to them and why, why should they should get involved? Two is the pitch to the general public. Like, why is this a public good or why is this very important? Uh, and the three is the pitch to, you know, pitch to technologists and entrepreneurs as to why they should build projects or join projects in this space. Okay, so the, the pitch to governments, I'm still new at the pitching to governments. I'm, I'm traveling to Africa for the first time on Monday. And so then I'm, I'm meeting with the government there. And there's a, a, a new city project that we're working relatively closely with. Um, and so I'll, I'll see how the pitch goes. What, what, what it is effectively is, look, it's we want to make um, your country one of the best places to do business in the world. We want to attract foreign direct investment. We want to create jobs. We want to spur economic growth. You have a lot of urbanization um, occurring. And you need to figure out how these people are going to lead meaningful and productive lives. And this is a strategy that allows you to, to do it. It's get uh, organizations like the World Bank to give tacit, if not explicit, support. So it doesn't come off as this is here, there's this crazy thing because it isn't. It's um, a set of existing best practices. This is, this is a way to really make the lives better for your people as well as to become a leader in the charter city space that is drawing increased attention. The, the pitch to the, the general public is, if the general public cares at all about global poverty, then this is one of the most cost-effective ways to end it because economic growth, um, China, for example, lifted about 800 million people out of poverty over the last 40 years due to their economic growth that was caused by urbanization combined with special economic zones. And this is basically copying that model and adopting it for other parts of the world. And so it has the potential to lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. And that is something that's good, combined with the fact that it's self-sustaining and it's self-replicating. So once you get one or two examples, then they'll spread. And so unlike something, uh, for example, Malaria Nets, which is a very worthy charity, they, they have level effects, right? They only improve, they improve the quality of the lives of the people who don't get malaria, and that lasts for the rest of their lives. But there isn't any research of which I'm aware that leads to growth effects. It's not like once you get malaria throughout, like prevent malaria in a country, then that will lead to economic growth. No, what causes economic growth is good institutions. It's, it's rule of law. And so if you want to create those things, and charter cities are a good avenue to do so. And as for technologists, um, I think one, I mean, there's different types of technologists. But if they're not interested in sort of the effective altruism approach to charter cities, then one other conversation to have. And, and we've been focusing most of our time on charter cities as a mechanism to alleviate global poverty. But there is the other aspect of using charter cities, which you sort of hinted and alluded at, to accelerate economic growth and also to test new forms of social organization. And so, for example, you can imagine a, a city similar to Dubai, except based in Central America. That's really pushing the boundaries of a lot of types of technology where there might be um, a lot more medical innovation because it will have a, a regulatory body 
that's much more responsive than the FDA is or where you allow for the testing of drones much more cheaply and easily or self-driving cars. Similarly, I'm uh, working with Glenn Weil, who wrote a book called Radical Markets. And one of the ideas in the book is called a Harburger tax. And a Harburger tax says, rather than uh, having a property, having an appraiser come around and appraise the value of your property every year and you pay a percentage of that as a property tax, instead of doing that, you publicly list the value of your property. You have to pay taxes on that self-appraised value, so you want to appraise it relatively low. But on the flip side, anybody can buy that property at that self-appraised value, which gives you an incentive to appraise it relatively high. And so because of this, this is a this would lead to a, a great increase in allocative efficiency because it would allow for people to quickly buy up undervalued assets and put them to more productive uses. Would it work as described? Probably not. You probably need to test it and iterate it and figure out sort of what little changes on different margins you can make to make it more successful. But it is a relatively strong challenge to this traditional Western freehold notion of property that we have that could lead to substantial changes in right, substantial improvements in efficiency and in standard of living. And charter cities offer a relatively low cost mechanism to sort of test that out and figure out how that works in practice. And then once it's successful, you can scale it and get it adopted by other places just because a charter city would be more responsive to, to the people living there. And, and that I think is, offers a, a sort of test ground for some of these social innovations that otherwise would take a lot longer, if at all, to be tested and then adopted. Well, I'm curious about misconceptions around, around the uh, charter cities concept and other things that are not commonly understood. And, and one is that this idea that this is a radically, like a totally new concept, whereas we've had sort of, you know, smaller versions of this sort of certainly special economic zones in, uh, in Shenzhen, you know, that also experiments like, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore, or there's sort of a lot of history, you know, historical precedent over the last century that we could, we could point to. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, Hong Kong and, 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 and Singapore, according to the World Bank in 1960, they both their respective per capita incomes were over, were under, under $500 each, $500 per year. And now they're two of the wealthiest places in the world, largely because they adopted good rural sets. I mean, they also had some geographic luck in terms of being on major shipping routes, but uh, there's lots of places that are on those shipping routes that were not as successful as Hong Kong and Singapore. And so I think they do show that by creating these spaces uh, within which you have good governance on a city level that's sufficient for long-run economic growth, there are a few changes in the charter cities model, like Hong Kong and Singapore were to a certain extent accidents of history in that Hong Kong was a British colony where the financial Executor, financial secretary, John Cowperwaith was a classic liberal who pursued these ideals. Um, and then Lee Kuan Yew was arguably one of the greatest statesmen of, or not really, I mean, was probably one of the greatest statesmen of the, the 20th century. And so charter cities are different because you don't really start with these independent political units or semi-independent political units, and instead you have to negotiate with the country for a degree of legal autonomy, not sovereignty, but to get some autonomy in commercial law to improve it. But there's certainly a great deal of precedence in terms of what growing a city looks like and how a good set of institutions and, and, and good governance can make that a very successful undertaking. You talked about the three things that are important in this, you know, governance, politics, real estate, these three things, among others. But let's talk about governance. What system of governance is optimal for economic development 
and how location dependent or universal are these governance systems? Um, I think the, the, the governance systems are relatively universal. I mean, there's going to be different changes depending on the time period as well as depending on location. So for example, France in 1938 has a different set of optimal institutions than France does today, right? Obviously 1938, they're facing an existential threat of Nazi Germany while today Germany and France are friends. But in general, what good governance looks like is having rule of law, is making it relatively easy to start a business, to hire people, also conversely to fire people, to build new things, to allow commerce to flow relatively easily. There's a very extensive literature on economic freedom on the World Bank Doing Business Index that shows how these things are conducive to economic development. There's a lot of details where you want the government to be able to provide public goods to do a lot of important things, and those are going to be a little bit more context dependent. But in generally, I think there is, at least from a like right 5,000 foot view, there's a pretty strong consensus on what good governance looks like. And the challenge is in a lot of low income countries, they simply don't have that. And Charter Cities offers them a tool to get those policies there. On a very local level, there are going to be some differences on what the on what good governance looks like. But those really um, aren't the battle that needs to be had right now, just because there's so many improvements that can be done that are already agreed upon to be existing best practices. How do you think that traditional governance is going to be unbundled in this century? I I think this is one of the the big questions because we're seeing right now with, um, and just with citizenship, for example, citizenship is a lot more fluid than it was in the first half of the 20th century, where you are seeing some really small nations basically sell their citizenship for like a quarter million dollars a pop. And you're seeing the rise to a much greater extent of these stateless people who either for right fleeing violence or sometimes just be getting stuck in this endless bureaucracy face some of these challenges. So I think one of the questions is you, you, you need territorial governance just because there's always the threat of violence and violence is inherently territorial. And so you want some protection against that form of violence, but then there's a broad question of, okay, do you need, for example, business law to be done territorially Estonia with e-governance there and e-citizenship is basically allowing anybody in the world to register a business in Estonia and do it cheaply. And that seems to be a interesting project and a positive step forward. Maybe it will end up becoming that, right, uh, territorial governance focuses almost solely on violence and other really immediate social concerns while almost all commerce is unbundled. But I, I, I don't have particularly a, a strong answer for exactly how that's going to look. But I think that is going to be one of the key issues in, in the 21st century as it plays out. Totally. What is the relationship between geopolitics and local governance? One of the, the most interesting projects in, in the world right now is the One Belt, One Road project, which is China. And one way to interpret it is China effectively exporting their development strategy of building these new cities, of building these special economic zones around the world. They're focusing mostly in Asia and Africa right now with, for example, a lot of stuff going on in Pakistan. And I think it does show on one margin, these can be looked at as, as sort of charter city-esque phenomenon, where there is a degree of legal autonomy in some of these special economic zones in these projects. One really interesting example is in Sri Lanka, where China gave loans to develop this port. I, I forget the name of the port. In, uh, and Sri Lanka was late making payments. And so a state-controlled uh, enterprise, uh, a state-run enterprise in China 
is basically taking over this port, which sort of is echoes what happened with Britain and Hong Kong with respect to China. And so, right, over the last 50 or 60 years, there's been a relatively, with the exception of basically two large events, which was decolonization, as well as the breakup of the Soviet Union, which is arguably its own form of decolonization, there's been this relatively strong taboo against the creation of new countries. So Somaliland, for example, is the area in the north of Somalia. It's been run independently since 1991. It's had multiple elections that were declared free and fair by the international community. By most metrics, it's a, it's a model for governance in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but it hasn't gained international uh, recognition, largely because most African states are afraid to recognize it, because if they do, they're, they're worried about empowering separatist movements in their own countries. And so I think what we're seeing currently with the rise of China and with Europe becoming uh, relatively focused inward and, and sort of not looking so much beyond its borders anymore is basically the sort of a, a substantial change in sovereignty norms that is opening up the door for a lot of projects that wouldn't have been considered um, as many as like right five, 10, especially 20 years ago. And charter cities are one of those um, new political forms that is uh, becoming a lot more attractive than it had been in the past. Maybe moving more to the, the real estate side of things and just zooming out a bit. How do you think we'll spatially reorganize ourselves in the 21st century? I think one of the, the, the main underrated phenomenon in the world is, is demographics. Just in terms of if we want to explain, for example, American politics, one sort of explanation is this is the, the baby boomer wave that is voted Trump in as sort of one of their, um, now that they have this, this, this large generational momentum. And looking at demographics around the world, the U.S. has a negative birth rate. Europe, most of Europe has a negative birth rate. Uh, China has a negative birth rate. Africa has an extremely positive birth rate. And so there's going to be, there, there's very high urbanization in Africa as well as other parts of, as well as parts of Asia. Other, other ways that humanity will spatially reorganize itself, global warming is probably going to be, or, or climate change is probably going to be a major factor. And so one of the consequences of climate change is um, likely going to be the opening up of, of Siberia, as well as major parts of Canada that will become livable and farmable, as well as exploitable for natural resources. So there will probably be new cities built, basically, to take advantage of those resources, um, as well as uh, uh, transportation routes around, uh, along those cities. And then I think the third way that will lead to some, some spatial reorganization is technology, which basically comes in two forms. One is virtual reality, and then two is just changes to transportation technology. And virtual reality, it's unclear exactly how what effect that will cause. A lot of people thought the boom in video conferencing would lead to a lot more remote work when in reality it put an even greater premium on place because people would want to basically meet the people they had been interacting with virtually for, for a long time. Uh, virtual reality might have that same effect or it might become sort of sufficiently realistic that it would end up displacing some of the premium of place and allow for people to move to uh, more rural areas. The other technological question is transportation technology. And so we can see things, for example, boom is developing supersonic flight. What does that look like? 
in terms of changing uh, spatial reorganization, right? What's usually referred to as the, the, the first example of a modern special economic zone is in Shannon, Ireland. And that actually became a special economic zone because previously it was a stopover on international flights, on, on transatlantic flights from the U.S. to Europe because the flights would be unable to do direct, so they need to refuel in Shannon. And what happened was they basically developed planes that were able to do a single journey across the Atlantic, so they didn't need to stop in Shannon anymore. And Shannon realized, okay, we need some advantage. We need some reason to revitalize our economy. And they created uh, what's, what's usually referred to as the first special economic zone because of that. And we can imagine as, for example, direct and short flights um, around the world become more common, that's going to lead to different forms of spatial organization, maybe an increasing concentration in megacities. Um, and we can also imagine technologies like the Hyperloop having a similar effect. Um, and so we saw how cars reshaped spatial organization in uh, the 20th century with most old European cities being very walkable. And then American cities, particularly the American cities out west that were built for the car, they're much more car-centric. They're not really walkable. They're extremely sprawling. And as we see uh, new technology emerge, um, self-driving cars, we're going to see a, a similar change in spatial organization. And this relates to charter cities just because, right, charter cities have the advantage of having a better legal and regulatory environment but it's very costly to build a new city, to build out all the infrastructure. And so having other advantages in terms of attracting people to those locations is always important and looking at patterns of spatial reorganization and then taking advantage of some of those patterns to build charter cities where you predict new trade routes might emerge can then basically use that Greenfield City site to leverage for this legal autonomy that allows for this real bundle of uh, governance services that 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 can become a a uh, transform areas into thriving metropolises. Why have you chosen to focus in your from your angle um, for more of bringing people together rather than starting a new city project directly yourself? So I think in the this space there hasn't been. Um, so for example, Paul Romer he went to uh, Madagascar and then Honduras. And both of those projects didn't go particularly well, and then he left. And a lot of momentum died when he left because there was no institutional infrastructure to continue talking about, to continue pushing the ideas. There's been a lot of libertarians who have spent a lot of time and energy on Honduras, which still has the charter cities legislation on the books, but there hasn't been much, much progress there. And so what I view as, I think, the, the sort of highest current value add is to create the set of ideas and to create some of the institutions such that they're not reliant on a single person or on a single country. And if there are setbacks because different people leave the, the, the movement or if uh, countries change their laws, then there isn't just this killing of momentum like I've seen in the past to try to, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a venture capital approach, try to spread a lot of seeds in a lot of different places so you can have one or two successes. Um, and you're not entirely reliant on on single projects. At some point, I, I, I am considering moving into the um, actual sort of more of a city building phase, but I'm not sure the space is at that time yet. And I would need to make sure that the center is up and running and can be successful without me before I make that transition. So let's say we uh, we fast forward a few years where, where the space is more ready and the, the center is is in a sustainable place or more sustainable place. Let's say that you uh, you are either starting a project directly or starting a fund to back projects 
directly. I'm curious, what would be your, your approach or your sort of request for startups or your request for innovation for people out there who are looking to pursue projects in this space? And maybe we can you know, do them along the lines of your real estate politics and governance uh, angle or I'll sort of leave it up to you to yeah, so I think the what, what, one of the important things that I look for is just what what country are they coming from, and then what are the what, what does that country look like? So key attributes are going to be um, what is the urbanization rate. If there is a rapid urbanization rate, that prov- like offers a much higher upside than if the urbanization rate is basically flat. Two is where is the uh, country on respective trade routes? Is there a lot of infrastructure development that's happening there without the charter city, because that would indicate that there is a demand for a lot of this infrastructure development. The three is the country. You don't want a country that's completely unstable and you don't want a country that's super developed because if it's extremely developed and already reasonably well run, then the upside is much lower. On the other hand, if it's extremely unstable, then even if they pass legislation, that's not going to be credible as, as a future commitment. So you need to really hit that sweet spot. Um, additionally, right, there's the standard questions of who is the entrepreneur? Um, are they ambitious? Do they have a meaningful understanding of what this project entails? I mean, I think this is different from a lot of, right, sort of the, the, the traditional venture capital model in just that most charter cities, I think, would look relatively similar, adjusted for a local context, right? Like the metric for, is there a market for charter cities? That, that metric, I think, looks relatively similar. So it's a little bit more standardized than a traditional venture capital model might be. And then two, right, you, you don't want to finance charter cities via venture capital. I mean, venture capital might finance the first $10 million, but ultimately, these are real estate projects, so you want to finance them via debt, which requires a whole separate set of relationships and a whole separate sort of understanding of what that market looks like and how to target those sovereign wealth funds, investment banks, whatever, that are interested in, in those types of projects. Other important qualifications is just, is the person able to right, like put on a suit, get meetings with the right senior administration in their respective country? and to propose legislation that that looks good because this does have the inherently political angle. And so you do need to um, make sure that the respective entrepreneur understands that and is able to play to a certain extent the political role. There was a recent article in BBC where the German minister of Africa uh, proposed charter cities and the article was, uh, and the title was the term voluntary colonialism. And that's basically exactly what you want to avoid, which is why I'm much more bullish on projects where the lead of the project is a national of the of the host country, because right, you don't want to evoke these ideas of colonialism. You want to make sure that their local culture, that the host country is respected, because just any time there's these massive um, infrastructure investments, any time you ask for a degree of legal autonomy invokes all these questions of, of sovereignty and of geopolitics. And you need to make sure that the person who is leading the project is able to understand those and, and equipped to handle them effectively. Talon Cowan recently came to uh, one of your, or gave a talk uh, at one of your events. And he said that there are three big sort of elements of, of charter cities. And I think one of them was that they're typically attached to a hegemon. Can you sort of unpack his, his three points and, and what you thought about that? One was a hegemonic charter city. The other was a minimal charter city. And then an exported culture charter city. 
So a minimal charter city would just be something like a cruise ship where there is a separate set of laws. Most cruise ships don't fly under the American flag, but they fly under some other flag. But it, and, and, and it works on the cruise ship, but it's not really very meaningful substantive change in a greater sense than that. So it's sort of interesting as a thought experiment to understand social organization and to understand society, but it's not something that is uh, more than that. And so other examples would be for a homeowners association or a shopping mall where you do have these these forms of local governance, but they don't really lead to this long-term shift. The other is a hegemon-backed charter city, and you can think of, to a certain extent, this is any time a hegemon has a substantial influence. So this would be Hong Kong. Hong Kong was conquered by the British, and it was governed by the British, even though it was uh, in basically entirely ethnically Chinese. It was governed by the British, and it was because it was backed by the British and governed by them, it was able to credibly enforce legal autonomy, their, 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 their autonomy from the mainland of China, and it experienced tremendous economic growth uh, because of that. Other examples, um, I mean, you could think of to a certain extent of the American South as a charter city, which was colonized by the North during the Reconstruction era. And uh, a lot of places, especially small towns in the South, there would probably be, for example, much more stringent laws and regulations in favor of discrimination against minorities, were it not for the intervention of the, the federal government. Puerto Rico is another example where it has the, the U.S. government is creating the, the legal system there, and Puerto Rico is a lot richer than the Dominican Republic, which has the same uh, sort of population with a, a, a similar history, uh, namely as a Spanish colony, but because the Puerto Rico happened to be colonized by the U.S., they tend to be doing uh, better than some of their Caribbean neighbors who, otherwise, neighbors who otherwise have similar histories. And then the last is a, a cultural charter city, where you export the culture as well as some of the legal institutions. Singapore, to a certain extent, is a cultural charter city in that it's very heavily influenced by British culture. For example, Lee Kuan Yew studied in, in, in England, making sure that whoever the ruling elite of that respective charter city are basically have internalized the norms of another culture and are able to effectively govern within that set of norms that can lead to these positive outcomes. And so one way to differentiate between a hegemon charter city and a cultural charter city is that a hegemonic charter city, right, the, the, the binding constraint is the backing by the hegemon such that the hegemon can provide a credible commitment to that new set of policies. This is somewhat analogous to what China is doing currently with the One Belt, One Road project to their extent that their overseas projects are similar to charter cities it's much more of a hegemonic model. A, a cultural model is, okay, why does it continue to have these good laws and regulations? It's because the ruling elite of that society have a culture that is very dedicated to that set of norms. As to what I think, I, I mean, the, the Center for Innovative Governance Research, we're pushing something that's much closer to a cultural model of a charter city because hegemony, I mean, works if you have a hegemon that's willing to effectively serve as a credible commitment. And currently there isn't really a Western hegemon that's willing to do that. Second, I mean, you don't want to impose charter cities via force. These have to be voluntary. And so if you have a hegemon come in and do that, it just smacks of force. And even if it's invited in by the host country, it's still just a little bit too similar to colonialism. And so if you have a, a cultural charter city 
where you're able to create a new set of legal institutions, but it's not backed by a hegemon. Instead, it's backed by some other form of organizational structure that's dedicated to that good set of institutions, either because of these internal values or because of some sort of relationship with the property developer that right, builds in the in incentive mechanisms for long-run growth then that, um, I think, is a model that's much more sustainable and, and can have a, a, a positive impact while without really infringing upon the, the rights of any of the, the, the residents of the host country in doing so. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges of new city projects. You know, we, talk, we talked about overplanning, wrong sets of experts. We you unpack those. Sure. One of my, I guess, introductions into the new city space which pulled me away from the traditional techno-libertarian side was that I was doing some consulting work on a new city project in Kazakhstan about two and a half years ago. And it was fascinating because what they did was they basically right, hired a urban planning firm. And this urban planning firm, firm is reasonably prestigious and has done a lot of usually right, city blocks. So redoing a city square or something like that. And now here they had this project where instead of redoing a city block or several city blocks, it was basically building an entire city. And they reached out to their network of people who was a lot of architects and urban planners. I believe I was the only economist there. And it was fascinating. I mean, one conversation I had was with a distinguished professor of urban planning uh, from MIT. And I brought up the fact that zoning and land use regulations increase housing prices. And his response was, no, really? And right, that's, I thought it was common knowledge. And his job is to go around and advise on, to a certain extent, zoning and land use regulations. And he wasn't familiar with the, the first argument against them. The, the people often paid lip service to Jane Jacobs, who is a cr- critic of overplanning. But in reality, they would basically put a, get a architect usually who would effectively draft like here's the business district here's the industrial park here's the residential we want a canal here and it was very much so this right we can top down plan exactly what a city looks like when i'm a lot more amenable to what new york did with the commission of 1811 where they basically define public spaces and they define private spaces and they said okay now these are where the roads are going to be and you can build anywhere where they're not going to be. And so people just went and, 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 and built. And to a certain extent, you do need to plan with a right new city project just because to raise investor funding, you do need to show pretty pictures and you do need to have, have, have this real estate project because they're financed as real estate project projects. But I think there is a, that, that over planning often swings far too much in that over plan direction rather than the optimal amount of planning direction. And two, it's just that I I think there needs to be a proper understanding of also the role of governance in these projects. And so going back to my experience in Kazakhstan, I had another conversation where somebody was saying we can put a financial center here, we can put it here, pointing to different spots on the map. We can have tall buildings, we can have medium-sized buildings. And I make the point, well, no matter where the buildings are or how tall they are, Unless you have a legal system that's conducive to international financial companies, right, your finance center won't do anything because you need the the companies that have these assets to be willing to enter and to be willing to do business in that area. And so making sure that you have a legal and regulatory regime that's conducive and that's attractive to them is, is particularly important. And 
these conversations are currently largely um, just not included in many of the master planning cities discussions. And I'm hoping to be able to sort of have those conversations with them and, 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 and put the importance of governance in their, in their mind space so that when these new city projects are being developed, they can make sure that they're approached in a manner that allows for the best possible outcome. So I, I want to see if you were running a new city project and you were in, in charge, uh, how you would do things differently. So, so first off, what sort of government structure would you, would you implement? I mean, this is going to be very dependent on the negotiations with the host country. If we assume that the host country gives us a blank slate in commercial law, then the second question is going to be what are the constraints that we're facing, both uh, basically geographic and uh, demographic. And so there's two models, broadly speaking, for charter cities. One I would call the Shenzhen model and two I would call the Dubai model. The Shenzhen model is when you have a bunch of where, where, where the natural population for the charter city is low human capital, high labor intensive people. And so that you probably want to start with a relatively minimal bare bones legal system. That's uh, you want to have it at a uh, major um, transportation center. So probably a port. And you want to start probably with something like textile manufacturing and work your way up the supply chain as you get more and more developed and you sort of increase your, improve your legal system as that happens. Um, but what you would want to do is focus really on these multinational foreign enterprises, multinational enterprises to come in and build the, the, the large-scale textile, textile manufacturing. The other model is Dubai, which is largely um, service sector. Yeah, high, high, high human capital, mostly sort of, right? Uh, Dubai is a European labor market, but you can imagine one in Southeast Asia or in Central America. And for that, you would want a much more advanced legal system to import common law, to have sort of standard of whatever the, the respective laws are from the host population that you're trying, from the population that you're trying to target. And so model them off of laws that they would be familiar with and such that, right, they, uh, in terms of labor standards, in terms of what the work week looks like, uh, making sure that you tailor the legal and regulatory environment to whatever the, the constraints that are facing the project are in a way to give it the, the best chance for success. And I mean, the, the other question, right, if, if, even if we assume that the host country, that they're give a blank slate in commercial law, the other relevant question is going to be with the investors and with the anchor tenants. And so whenever you're doing one of these projects, you want a large anchor tenant because an anchor tenant who immediately creates 5,000 jobs can all help, one, like offset a lot of the initial infrastructure investment, and two, lower the risk because nobody wants to be the first person there because there's no grocery store, there's no whatever. But if you have one tenant come in and create 5,000 jobs and suddenly there's a minimum population for that grocery store, for that uh, pharmacy, for all of those uh, human needs, and so whoever that anchor tenant is, you might want to think about what would make the, the, the area most conducive to them in terms of creating a legal framework that they have familiarity with, that they have experience with, that allows them to, to create that interest in building a factory in their respective location. And again, all of these assuming blank slate, how about just the political process in general? Do you mean the political process of governing the city or the political process of achieving the blank slate? Uh, no, uh, governing the city. So here, what I would recommend is generally you probably want a independent governing body 
that is made up with various experts as well as having working relatively closely with the real estate development company. And you don't want it to be controlled by the real estate development company, but you want a lot of synergies there with the idea being the real estate company has a interest in boosting the long-term land values. And if you have a good governance system, then you boost the long-term land values. And so to have a body of experts who have a decent idea of what best practices are, as well as are not going to be um, influenced by the politics of the host country, because that's another risk if the host country decides to renege on the agreement and wants to put pressure on the charter city to change their policy set. You want the people who have the decision rights over policy to not be influenced by, by the host country. And you probably want to put a timer on this governance system because it's not, you, 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 you want to sort of at some point create something that turns the, the decision rights a little bit more over to the, the residents of the, the city. But when you start, um, you're thinking a lot about the future residents of the city. And so you don't want it to be the situation where the first 10 people who happen to move to the city have all of the decision rights because you have to think about the potential decision rights of all of the future residents combined with the fact that attracting all of this investment requires some set of relatively constrained decision rights with expected outcomes that will lead to the basically repayment of some of these investments. To me, this question is a little bit, I think, open-ended. This is something that's naturally just going to happen, most likely in negotiation with the host country, because I think the host country, expect the host country to have a relatively high degree of interest in what that governance system looks like. And so I I expect it to be relatively context-dependent and something that's just naturally going to emerge out of the the set of negotiations and who the respective players are in those. And I mean, for example, if we look back to the American founding, on one margin, we can say this is the work of a bunch of inspired men who created these timeless truths. And to a certain extent, that's accurate. But to another extent, they're all very much products of their era, products of that time, and the, the respective weight that those different players held. It was very much a negotiation. And so political process within the charter city, I think, is to a certain extent an emergent phenomenon that is going to occur out of this process. And it's hard to sort of envision, I guess, a platonic ideal for what that looks like. What about uh, citizenship broadly? Like uh, I was talking to Patrick the other day about could there be an initial citizenship offering the way there is an initial coin offering? Like, how do you think that will evolve? Um, It depends on what citizenship is. I mean, these, right... A charter city is, does not have sovereignty. It's part of the host country. It follows the constitution of the host country, probably the criminal laws of the host country, the international treaties of the host country, right? In terms of looking at economic development or technological acceleration, you, you don't need sovereignty to do those. You, you need uh, autonomy and commercial law to be able to do those. So I'm, I'm not sure, right? You, you Depending on the project, you might have a special visa regime. For example, if you're doing something like a Dubai clone in Central America, you might want to have an expedited visa process for Americans or for other high human capital individuals who you want to attract to your city. But I don't think you want a citizenship, as, at least as it's usually conceived of in the world. And, and I, I mean, I, broadly speaking, I think there are going to be changes, as I previously mentioned, to citizenship and the idea of it. 
in the 21st century, but in terms of what the first generation of charter cities looks like in practical projects on the ground, I don't see them having much of a meaningful impact on that. And to the extent that charter cities projects are embracing the idea of new forms of citizenship, I would generally recommend against that just because it, it seems to me like an added layer of risk that carries relatively limited upside. Right. You mentioned earlier how VR could play a role. Is, is blockchain or crypto relevant at all to, to your work or other sort of emerging technology platforms? It, it is to an extent. Uh, I think it's commonly overstated. There is a large interest in the blockchain community for these projects, which is something that's very positive. And blockchain is obviously also um, a new set of institutions that is challenging existing institutions, for example, monetary institutions. And there is certainly some aspect of, right, if you want a ledger for property rights, then, then a blockchain could supply that. But I generally think most of these processes in a charter city could effectively be solved by centralized ledgers. Having a decentralized ledger for property is primarily valuable if you don't trust the centralized ledger. And the primary advantage of the primary value of a charter city is basically creating a centralized authority that you can trust. And so if you create a charter city where you need a blockchain for land titles, and that suggests that there's something wrong with how you're establishing the charter city because it suggests that it's unable to act as a trusted authority to keep a centralized ledger of property titles. Um, So there's certainly spaces on different margins where blockchains could add value. But to me, I generally think of that as a problem down the line. I think in thinking of charter cities, right, I want to de-risk them at every margin. And so if there is a something that is new and untested, I figure let somebody else test it, right? Let Dubai set up, I mean, what best practices in blockchain and governance look like? And then in three years, once that exists and once there are case studies, then let's look at those case studies and see what can be used and applied to charter cities. But charter cities are already sufficiently complex that trying to push different margins on different frontiers doesn't seem like the, the primary value add at, at this stage in the space. Yeah, and going back to the blank slate concept, if you could sort of do over, or, or you know, in your new city, how would you approach healthcare, or the FDA? With regards to the FDA, again, this is relatively context dependent. If I imagine I want to create a um, new right FDA and sort of com- compete with the FDA to offer a new set of medicine and regulatory approval process, I think you need to to consider several things. One is the market size in a charter city is necessarily going to be much lower than the market size in the U.S. And so you want to focus on procedures and devices and medicine that are basically one-stop shops where you probably don't want to do prescription drugs for chronic diseases because then whoever has that disease would have to come to the charter city every time they want to refill the prescription. On the other hand, if you think of single procedures, for example, LASIK, that's something that you might want to do in a charter city because then you can bundle that with a week in a vacation in some nice area. What the FDA would look like, I think what you would probably, right, you have this basically a fine line to walk. You don't want to allow anybody to do anything because then you get a bunch of people selling snake oil and that damages the brand of the charter city, especially if you're focusing on medicine. So you want the, the charter city to have a strong reputation in medicine and basically act as a 
enforcers saying, look, you can come here and you can try things and they'll all be reasonably trustworthy and not fraudulent. And so I think you would, what you would want to do is basically set up a advisory board, something like that, where you get several distinguished bioethicists as well as people with experience in the drug and medical device regulatory process, but those people who think that the FDA is too slow. And then with them, you would basically set up a alternate regime. And that regime would be much more conducive to new products. Maybe you model it somewhat off of, right, look at in depth what China is doing or what Japan is doing. China, for example, has uh, nine or 10 CRISPR trials going on. You probably want um, more regulatory oversight than what they have, but you probably want a looser hand than what the U.S. has. And to look relatively in depth at what best practices around the world are and figure out on what margins can you push to improve these best practices to accelerate the development of drugs and medical devices. And then you you get the advisory board to be sufficiently stacked with people with strong reputations that you're able to at least push back hard against any sort of criticisms of you're just selling snake oil or the usual stuff that you you, you might expect uh, to, to get. I was going to ask next about prison slash police, but I think you covered this a little bit in your thesis. Can you, if you did, can you unpack it and maybe perhaps talk about your thesis a bit more broadly, your PhD thesis? Sure. So my, my PhD was on a particular kind of charter cities, proprietary cities, building off the work of Spencer McCollum, who's the, the guy who lived in Mexico he went to stay with. He advocated the idea of a, a proprietary community, which is effectively like a shopping mall where there's a single owner who provides public goods because uh, a shopping mall, for example, provides security, lighting, open spaces because they want to boost the value of the storefront. And so the idea is you can scale up this model to the charter city level, where then the proprietor, who is basically the real estate developer with a long-term interest in the value of the land as a partial residual claimant, is incentivized to provide public goods like a good court system, like uh, effective administration, to boost the value of the land that they are renting to the, the, the residents and to that community. And so what I did was look at, for example, what can we learn from other examples of some of these natural monopolies, looking at water, uh, the provision, private provision of water. Did that lead to better outcomes or worse outcomes in government provision of water? The answer was it led to slightly better outcomes, mostly in Latin America, not substantially better, but slightly better. Also looking at how proprietary communities fit in different literature, such as public choice, such as institutional economics, and is this thinking about what it would mean to engage in some institutional decision-making from the perspective of having a single proprietor and what their incentive structure would be, and would that lead to better outcomes than what the current system looks like? And in general, the answer is probably yes, but until we try it, it's hard to say for sure. Is there more around uh, private prisons or police you'd want to say? I, I, I haven't thought deeply about private prisons. I think you generally want to leave the criminal justice system as having the same criminal laws as the host country. Most host countries are going to be unlikely to want to change the criminal laws. Depending on who the host country is, you might want to have your own police force. Because, for example, in Honduras, uh, when I lived there four years ago, it was the murder capital of the world, and it's still incredibly violent. And so you do want a police force that is relatively trustworthy. For example, when I lived there, 
I spoke with several of my friends and these were right middle class, upper middle class people. And they would tell me that they were more afraid of the police than they were the gangs. And that gives you a idea of, I guess, the, how, how pervasive the corruption was there. And so having a law enforcement body that has the right incentives that you can trust, you need to put in certain protections because you don't want this to be, you see this occasionally, for example, on college campuses in the U.S., where the police protect the star football player who's accused of sexual assault because, right, football brings a lot of money to the university. And so you want to avoid challenges like that. But at the same time, if the police are sufficiently corrupt, then starting with the blank slate and creating a system such that they spend more time protecting property and preventing crime than extorting the local population is is a potential high value add depending on where the charter city is. Obviously, the challenge is that private police have negative connotations. And in the U.S., historically, you've seen some abuses, for example, the Pinkertons. And so you want to make sure that the incentive structure is set up and aligned correctly such that the, the police are rewarded for doing their job, meaning lowering, reducing crime and, 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 and solving crime and not rewarded for things that just sort of entrench existing interests, but really can contribute to the long-run economic vitality of the community. One trend of noticing these questions is I'm sort of asking sort of blue sky, you know, blank square questions. And I think in, in your, your response is, hey, you know, these are fun experiments, but they can actually be somewhat harmful in that, you know, it, it's much more important to work with those countries than it is to tell them what to do better. Is that yeah. One of the reasons I started the Center for Innovative Governance Research is I was going to conferences and I would see the, the same people at the conference and it would be the same people as five years ago. And I mean, these people are my friends and I like seeing them, but the right innovative governance charter cities should be more than just a social club. And it should actually lead to substantive changes in the real world because I think there is a lot of potential that could be done. I mean, my goal is to right, help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty. And so every year we spend being a social club with our friends and talking about these theoretical ideas versus being on the ground and getting our hands dirty and actually working to improve governance, even if it's not perfect. It's a waste if, if we're just doing the social club and not contributing to meaningful progress too. I think broadly just there is this idea, right? So if you ask somebody if you, anybody, right, an economist, for example, how many shoes should the U.S. produce next year? Um, or if you were a shoe dictator, how many shoes would you produce? And the proper answer is, look, I don't know, right? We have this set of institutions that um, work to basically, right, estimate supply and demand. And then if too many shoes are produced, then too, like, right, they can adjust for that and sell off the excess supply. And so the number of shoes produced every year is an emergent phenomenon. And it should be seen as such. And we shouldn't have people who sort of sit in the back room and, and hypothesize of what the optimal number of shoes to produce is. And similarly, governance, I think, should be viewed as an emergent phenomenon. It's not something that we should sit and hypothesize over what's the platonic form of governance that is the best. But instead, it's something that we should look at and think, OK, what forms of governance would lead to better outcomes and how can we work to implement those forms of governance in the real world? What does that look like? And we do want some idea of, right, like what good governance looks like. 
But I, I generally think within certain spheres, there's been far too much emphasis on what sort of this optimal level of governance looks like and much too little emphasis on what can be done to try to move in that direction. And then what does it look like when we take steps in that direction, even if it isn't really the optimal level, but is still substantial improvements. Great. We, we, we talked about a few of these exa- uh, city examples, um, but I want to sort of do sort of a survey of different you know, cities or countries that have experimented with this, what we can learn from them. You know, we talked a bunch about seasteading already. But my question to you on seasteading is, do you think that the sort of you know, techno libertarians or the seasteading crew has learned a different set of lessons than you have? So I think they've, we've learned some of the same lessons. For example, looking at how they've adjusted their strategy, I see that as very much a lesson similar to the one I learned, that you don't want to start off being like, middle finger, we can do it better, but instead trying to work with host countries. I think that is a lesson that um, is important. One lesson that I see that I, that I guess I might have learned differently is right now they're focusing, Blue Frontiers is focusing on this project in French Polynesia. I think that will be quite challenging just because it's not on any major trade routes and doesn't have this demographics working for it. And so I've chosen to focus much more heavily on Africa because that has demographics and that has all of these investments coming in. And so I'm not sure that, and I wouldn't say that that's a lesson I've learned from the movement per se, from any individual failures. It's just, a, I think, from talking to people who are on the ground in new city development, it's, it strikes me also as a little bit of, of I guess, um, common sense to try to focus on build cities while build cities where the people are. And so I, I think we have... Um, learn some of the, the the lessons, and I'm trying to bring in other lessons from other spheres that I think also would be beneficial to some of the the Seasteading Institute's plans. Are, are there specific lessons we can learn from the stories of Shenzhen or Singapore or Hong Kong, or is it all just broad? Hey, do more of this. Um, there are certainly specific lessons. So, for example, Shenzhen. Part of the reason it started was basically because the Hong Kong investors kept pushing for. Um, opportunities. It was also, right, Shenzhen in 1980 was the fishing village of 30,000 people. And so China, there, when they created the special economic zones, they specifically and intentionally located them away from major population centers like Shanghai and Beijing. Why? Because if they had been located in major population centers, they would have been more politically disruptive. And by locating them away from major population centers, there was a lot less political disruption that occurred. And so This is also going to be something that's context dependent. Sometimes you might want to locate it near population centers just because if you're working very closely with the ruling elite of the host country and they're interested in the project, then maybe locating it close to the population center and getting the ruling elite to have a vested vested interest in the long-term success of the project would be beneficial. And then also from Shenzhen, another thing that can be learned is the degree of autonomy, most special economic zones, right, there's a law passed, and then that special economic zone, there's a special regulatory board that enforces whatever that law is, and there isn't really any flexibility. Shenzhen had a lot of flexibility, and it was a constant push and pull between Shenzhen and the federal government in terms of what their level of autonomy was and how that was implemented on the ground. And I think that's important to consider for charter cities. I, I, I think Dubai also offers some prescient examples just in terms of how they structure their development, first moving, taking advantage of nearby 
actions. So, for example, when Iran, I forget when this was, but they create past legislation that basically increased the import duties on the ports. And a bunch of Iranian traders were like, hey, what's going on? And Dubai was like, come on, guys, we don't have any import duties. And so they attracted a few 10,000 um, Iranian traders and just right paying attention to the nearby things on the ground that are occurring and taking advantage of them when they happen. So if you have a population, for example, right, Venezuela is now, there's a huge migration away from Venezuela because of the tragedy that's occurring there. Many of them are fleeing to Colombia. If Colombia was smart, they could set up a charter city to take advantage of this. They're basically like, okay, Venezuelans are highly educated. They're smart people. They speak the same language. There's not a large cultural barrier, right? Like, come on, come work here and produce value. And this is a potentially um, very beneficial thing to, to, to take advantage of. Right? I mean, there's certainly broad lessons like governance matters. And then getting into the, the details, there I think are additionally specific lessons. Another interesting thing about Dubai is because it's basically owned by the royal family, they're able to effectively internalize a lot of, a bene- a lot of the benefits from um, building out infrastructure. So when they build out the, the metro system, they can say, okay, well, we're building the metro system. This is going to cause the adjacent land to greatly increase in value. But the guy who's building the metro system, the guy who's landed is, is his like cousin, right? And so there is this, you don't want something that's as sort of nepotistic as that. But at the same time, because they're blood and because they're related and because they know who each other are and because they see each, each other, there is this um, mutual reinforcement of, right, the person building the metro system is able to capture some of the upside of the increase in value of land. That allows for the promotion of these projects that have these positive externalities because they've created this system within which those positive externalities sink back in um, and aren't captured by these external private actors. And so one of the things I'd like to do with the center is to get a lot more in-depth on some of these examples, including the Dubai International Financial Center, which imported common law. It was copied by Abu Dhabi as well as uh, Qatar in looking at what the decision trees for the importation of common law were in those instances, what the benefits were, what the trade-offs were, and thinking about how that could be applied to a new charter city. I think there are a lot of very specific lessons that could be learned that right, aren't really being deeply thought about at this point, and we would like to begin to change that. Yeah. You mentioned the, the Colombia, you know, Venezuela situation. I, mean, I feel like broadly there should be a huge opportunity for you know, all the people who are struggling to find a place, like for just one country to clean up in terms of saying, hey, we're a haven for people who are you know, struggling to find a place who are really smart and uh, want to contribute. Is this perhaps your concept of refugee cities? Yeah, well, so refugee cities isn't my concept, but I, I'd certainly say that. You can actually look at Dubai as being to a certain extent that already. If you visit Dubai, there's a lot of people um, from basically minority groups in different countries, white South Africans, for example, uh, uh, religious minorities from other parts of the Middle East who effectively come to Dubai because feel that they are don't have the opportunities that they would like in their host country and might be subject to a disproportionate amount of violence and so come to Dubai to effectively build a life for themselves. A refugee city, I mean, there, there, there are several ways to, to, to think about it. One is just that there is about 20 million refugees and 60 million internally displaced persons around the world right now. And so um, you, you see Europe, I mean, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry both recently said that Europe needs to limit migration because of the risk to internal politics. 
And so now it's recently become this sort of right, like cross uh, political issue. And so being able to create opportunities for refugees that also don't threaten the political institutions of the host countries. You can imagine one in North Africa. And and you see there have been certain steps towards this already, uh, what's called the Jordan Compact, where Jordan had a lot of special economic zones that were underperforming and basically agreed for these trade preferences as well as very preferential investment and loans from the European community. Jordan would open some of their special economic zones to refugees. And so there has been, to some extent, this linking of special economic zones and refugees, but not nearly to the extent that I think would be ideal, uh, especially because in many refugee camps, you have multi-generations who live there, where the the people, the, they grow up, the, the refugees grow up with no conception beyond the refugee camp, entirely dependent on UN handouts, and very often with no legal right to work either. And so by creating an environment where they had the legal right to work, where they had the right to own property, as well as attracting some investment, you could allow them to create meaningful lives for themselves instead of just being held sort of in this hiatus based on this very old model of refugees that developed basically in the immediate post-war era where people assumed that conflicts would end and then the refugees would be able to return home. And currently in a lot of conflicts, just there is no end in sight. And so having a way for refugees to rebuild their lives in another location is crucial. And I, I know we can't, uh, the project is fairly stealth, but can you talk just a little bit more about the project uh, in Africa that you're working on? Sure. So this is the, the project that I'm most excited about right now. I'm flying to Africa next Monday, the, I guess the 26th. And I met the entrepreneur who's building a new city. It's outside of the capital city. Um, he's building it for approximately 100,000 residents, including a university, a business park, a lake, an industrial park. And I've known him for a little bit under two years, and we, I asked, he had expressed an interest in improving governance, but didn't really know how. So I introduced him to the um, relevant person who is able to basically do the draft legislation and do things like that. And we're, we're also, we're, we're beginning negotiations with the, the host country to basically present, okay, here's the idea of a charter city. Is this something that you are interested in pursuing? If so, to what extent are you interested in pursuing it? Seeing if we can start to build the coalition that can um, help to basically get the, the process started in terms of uh, legislation as well as executive orders and memorandums of understanding. It'll probably be about 18 months until uh, we see meaningful legislative action on the legislation. Probably like, I don't know, four to six months for a memorandum of understanding and nine to 12 months for an executive order. But I haven't been through this process before, so it's uh, relatively hard to say. We have two other projects that are in the pipeline, another in a country in Africa. There is a new city project of 150,000 residents that has recently expressed interest in becoming a charter city. And so we've started the conversation with them, but we need to continue it to really draw up what a plan means and what those steps are. And then we are drafting a actionable, uh, a white paper for a project in Latin America that we are hoping can draw sufficient attention. It's basically a two-year plan for starting a charter city. And we hope it draws significant attention to be able to put together a team to execute on the ground. And so those second two projects in the pipeline, we expect 
meaningful action being like a team that has a plan that is actively working towards it with funding. Um, we expect that to take place in both of those probably within about six months. And so we've, we were making a lot more progress on the ground in terms of traction in, in, in having meaningful charter cities conversations and progress than we expected. And we're, we're quite proud of that. What about other lessons from other sort of experiments broadly, whether it's uh, any specific lessons from, you know, Honduras we talked about a little bit, but maybe even further back, uh, Operation Atlantis or Republic of Minerva? Sure. So I think those are lessons that I, I've sort of gone over in mostly that you need to work with host countries. You can't try to go do this on your own. Basically, there's two ways to build the city. One is you create a religion, and two is you have an economic proposition. And so if we look at, um, I don't know if you watched Wild Wild Country, the Netflix show. I haven't seen it now. It's, it's basically this Indian guru in the 1980s who, I mean, the, it basically forms a cult that builds a city of about 10,000 people in Oregon, I believe. And they get in all sorts of fights with the locals, as well as create like do voter fraud and eventually get basically kicked out. And Utah is an example of a successful right city and or state being created by religion, but ultimately that's not a very practical venue. And I think in this space too often, there's been this, right, we want to have this intentional community and the religion being this particular set of political ideals rather than um, a economic proposition. And so I'm trying to push much more in the here is an economic proposition rather than a set of political ideals that will lead to economic development and to work with the, the, the respective host countries outside of sort of the techno libertarian tradition of things to consider. I mean, we briefly discussed over planning as well. And I think Brasilia, for example, that, that, that shows the, the challenges of over planning. It was planned um, as a new capital of Brazil and a tribute to modernity. And then it turns out that nobody actually lives in the planned part because it was planned not for people, but uh, it was actually planned to be visible like an airplane from the sky. And to have a much more, I guess, organic growth of the physical environment of the city. Other, I think, lessons that are important, just thinking about looking at how in China, much of their special economic zones were locally done. And so you need that, those local partners on the ground. You don't want the national government dictating everything. They're usually not sufficiently responsive to the needs. Having a large degree of um, private involvement. I mean, recently, for example, a German, I think I mentioned this previously, but the German uh, minister for Africa proposed charter cities, and he basically wants, he's envisioning um, charter cities as administered by a foreign power, and I don't think, I think those will run into a lot of challenges just right in terms of who makes the investment decisions, who makes the, the governance decisions and having a power that's on the ground, that's responsive to like responsive with those decision rights, I think is quite important, which is part of the reason why we're, we're so excited about partnering with some of these large real estate development companies that are doing, building the new cities independently, but see the natural sort of value add from getting some uh, a, a, a degree of legal autonomy to improve their governance systems. Totally. 
And you mentioned, <laughs> I don't want to uh, shy away from the religion point you mentioned. I mean, because remember Balaji's uh, talk? Silicon Valley's ultimate exit. Yes, yes. Talking about, oh, unpack that talk a little bit about how now it's easier to transport that you can imagine 10,000 people, you know, coming together on a shared belief and negotiating with the, and moving together. So he's definitely right that it is much easier now than it used to be. But so uh, coordination is easier. You see that, for example, with the Free State Project, where a bunch of libertarians um, agreed to move to New Hampshire, 20,000 people signed up. It took about 15 years for 20,000 people to sign up. And by then, right, if you signed up 15 years ago, then 15 years later, you're not going to really respect that idea because your life has changed. They've since gotten a few thousand, maybe up to 5,000 people to move there. So it's definitely easier to coordinate with the internet. I, but I don't think Balaji's proposition was belief-based per se. I think it was largely digital nomads who also were had an economic proposition as well, where they want to move somewhere with low taxes and somewhere that has a nice built environment that they respect. And so it, it you, th- th- there, there's certainly space for some of these projects, if done and if executed correctly, but there's space for a lot many executed on the economic proposition, right? You just have, in, in Africa and Asia, you've got 70 million people, new urban residents every year, and most of them are not new urban residents because of some political belief, but are new urban residents because of opportunities for jobs and things like that. And that market is just much bigger and there's much higher upside. And so that's the one I'm most excited about. What about the lessons from an event like Burning Man, uh, which I, I know in addition to having sort of macro lessons is a you know place where you've identified a lot of personal lessons as well. Sure. So um, in terms of, I think it shows the, to the extent the importance of how you can structure city development because the, the, the governing body, the Burning Man organization, doesn't do any of the build themselves. Everybody else does it, right? There's a group that builds the man. There's a new group that builds the temple. Everybody does their own art or their own. You don't have this single party that's directing everything. Instead, you have this emergent order of people within this set of rules, which is basically the, the, the 10 principles, radical inclusion, the gift economy, things like that that allow for the emergence and for the discussion of what Burning Man is. And so in terms of thinking about how to develop a city, I think one other very important lesson is building the culture. And so when you're building a company, for example, building the culture of that company is extremely important. And when you're building a city, building the culture of the city is also important. Uh, You see that when you travel to different places. Silicon Valley, for example, is one of my favorite cities because there's so many ideas and because there's a willingness to embrace big ideas, right? When I tell people certain plans that I have in Silicon Valley, I get a much different reaction than when I tell those plans to people in DC. There's a willingness to to embrace ambition and to to think about things in that respect. Similarly, Dubai. In Dubai, I've heard people on multiple occasions use the term Mars shot unironically because a moonshot is just not thinking big enough. And so different cities have different cultures. And I think that is an important aspect of long-term success. Um, One of the things that I think is very underrated is Peter Thiel's definite optimism, where he focuses uh, the, the, for example, the tagline of Founders Fund 
is we were promised 100, or we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters. So focusing a lot more on the, this, this thinking big and Burning Man shows how to create this sustainable, meaningful culture. And you don't want the, the same culture per se in a charter city, right? You don't want to be a gift economy that's not sustainable on a large scale over an extended period of time. But you do generally, I think, want that openness, want that, to a certain extent, weirdness, that willingness to embrace new ideas, that willingness to think big, that willingness to push certain boundaries, that willingness to engage with people outside your comfort zone. I think these are all positive cultural traits that I try to embrace in my personal life and I try to surround myself with. And I think they are also cultural traits that can have a positive and would have a positive impact on the long-term development of a a city you don't want people who are too complacent to go try to start the next big thing or go to 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 do something interesting like that let's uh before getting into individual uh people and how you how you differ from them let's talk a little bit more about china you mentioned you know one belt one road we talk more about how it applies to charter cities or even how you expect your center to uh impact with uh china or intersect with china over the next decade or so the One Belt, One Road projects, a lot of them do have degrees of legal autonomy from the host country. And so because of that, they can be thought of as charter cities or charter cities light. In many cases, it's unclear to what extent the of legal autonomy there is, whether it's something that's just tax breaks or an export processing zone, or whether it's more substantial than that. Um, these aren't frequently reported in easily accessible manners. So whether they're sort of light charter cities or like real fully fledged charter cities is going to be somewhat contextual and, and hard to say. To me, it's the, one of the most interesting and under-discussed projects around the world. I mean, they're, they're building massive infrastructure. Uh, they're investing an estimated $4 trillion over the coming decades. I think their uh, means are actually quite good. In terms of development, they're probably better than American means for overseas development, which generally is basically foreign aid and lobbying the government to try to adopt better policies. I think American ends are generally better, right? Liberal democracy is good and works reasonably well and human rights are cool. And those should be embraced, but the American means of achieving them overseas have been very ineffective. The Chinese ends of Chinese authoritarianism are not great, but their means of basically just building a lot of infrastructure, I think, are generally better than the American means of lobbying and occasionally going to war. With regards to how this interacts with the center, I mean, some of the projects that we work with, I expect to either solicit Chinese investment either directly in the real estate development or possibly in um, right building out factories in the industrial park. This is relatively similar to I mean, what we're doing in terms of trying to build charter cities are mega infrastructure projects with legal autonomy. So there are a lot of parallels. I would not be surprised if over the coming years there is increased sort of interaction with uh, various Chinese organizations and companies, just given that we're in a similar space of trying to facilitate these large infrastructure developments in low and middle income countries. And so because of that, I think there will be increasing interaction with them. I haven't had that yet, but I expect as our profile to rise and as we see successes on the ground for that to change. What did you take from the book Connectography and the author more broadly? 
I thought the book was quite interesting because I think it paints a world of how supply chains, how infrastructure developments are becoming increasingly important and how sort of the role of the nation state is eroding in, in those respects. It paints, I think, a, a vision of the, the world as we're moving towards. And so in the, 19, in the 20th century, the dominant form of social organization was the nation state, where that was one of the primary identifiers, identities for people, where that was the primary unit of analysis, where that was what preoccupied people's minds. And we're seeing a shift away from that in terms of, I believe it was Benjamin Barber who wrote the book, a right like a world of mayors, where and, and Richard Florida frequently makes this point as well, where cities are playing an increasing role on the national level. And I think connectography is making a similar point, though it's making that with a greater emphasis on uh, supply chains, how these new supply chains are being built out in terms of ports, uh, in terms of railroads, in terms of uh, roads, and how these affect geopolitical relations. And so one interesting specific example is looking at the uh, Red Sea, where we see a number of the, for example, Dubai Ports World, which is this Dubai Ports operating company, they're building a port in Somaliland. They're also building a port in Djibouti. The the funny thing about them building a port in Somaliland is it's actually the idea that got me in this free city in Somaliland by Michael Van Naughten is now being executed by Dubai Ports World. You see Saudi Arabia, they had this $100 billion city called King Abdullah Economic City, which they were building a, on the Red Sea. And now they're building a $500 billion city called Neom, which King or Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is making one of his signature projects. And so we are seeing this much greater emphasis of supply chains of infrastructure and of how those interact with different decision-making processes around the world. And I think that type of analysis is going to become increasingly important. And the nation state as a unit unit of analysis is going to right, sort of become reduced in relative importance as we move forward. And what are the implications of that? The, the implications, I think, are just going to be how we understand power and how it's distributed. I think we're moving towards the more polycentric legal order. And so traditionally, right, we've had this Westphalian notion of states where every state is sovereign. They can do whatever they want inside their borders and then outside, but they can't, shouldn't infringe on other states. And obviously, there's millions of exceptions to how this played out in practice. But it was a general, right, like, understanding of international norms and of sovereignty of how that worked. I think as we're seeing, uh, particularly with the One Belt, One Road project, but in general as well, there's a much greater willingness of countries to embrace these decentralized forms of legal autonomy, of these sort of concentric rings of power and of decision-making rights, where no longer are we going to see the nation state as the end-all be-all of decision rights, but there will be some set of decision rights that will be ceded to international bodies, and another set of decision rights that will be ceded to local bodies. And I, I expect in different worlds, we'll probably see this play out in different manners. But I think it's going to have a substantial impact on how 
we perceive political organization in, in the 21st century, I don't think it's going to be primarily a, a story of nation states anymore. What is uh, Thibaut sorting? Is that how to pronounce it correctly? Yes. Thibaut is an economist. I believe the paper was published in 1958. And he argued that under a set of assumptions, public goods would be provided because people would be able to move to the areas in which they would be able to better basically achieve those public goods. And so you wouldn't need these traditional mechanisms to provide public goods because the ability to exit to go to a different jurisdiction would be sufficient to get the optimal allocation of public goods. His assumptions in general aren't realistic. Looking at the literature, uh, voting with your feet, um, Tebow sorting does have an impact on public goods, but it's, it's, it's a relatively small impact in my opinion. And so I, I think, and this is one of the reasons I decided to focus on innovative governance rather than on competitive governance, because I think right competition is an important aspect, but when you're talking about different political units and when you're talking about moving between them, that's not going to be the primary determinant of success in a lot of cases. I think if a charter city is started, it's going to be able to be seen basically like what are the core principles, what is the governance structure, what is the team, how are they doing it, is going to be a much stronger indication of the long-term success than the second order effects like what is the the competitive process within which this takes place. Okay, so I want to name a person and then I want to hear you say what you've learned from that person and or where you have a slight disagreement with that person as it relates relates to this idea. So how about uh, Tyler Kahn? So I think what I've learned from him is a lot of, I think he's particularly stressed the, uh, I guess, geopolitical context of charter cities. And that's something that I've become recently increasingly attuned to. Where we differ, he's relatively skeptical of this idea he was kind enough to give the center a emergent ventures grant, which is the his philanthropic body. But in it, he said, I mean, he told me he was quite skeptical. <laughs> and I'm, I think, much more optimistic. I'm hoping to be able to to change his mind. And I think I will be able to do that. But I think he, he I'm, I'm not sure I can write steel man is skepticism because I I think it's a little bit misinformed, but he's been skeptical of our extent of the ability to to have success. Peter Thiel. I mean, learned a lot from him. Uh, I I think what's, I mean, Zero One is an excellent book. And I, I think the most important thing isn't necessarily really to charter cities. It's just about definite optimism and it's about thinking big and trying to, to, to change the world in that manner, as opposed to where I disagree with him, I think he places, right, he's a contrarian, and so he needs to be three steps ahead of everybody, and when you're a contrarian in that manner, I think it's not conducive to playing politics, and I think that's been one of the challenges in this space has been that sort of contrarianness, like you're doing a bad job, we can do it better. When in reality, most systems are, I think, relatively close to being efficient. George Stigler wrote a paper, everything is efficient, where basically like if it wasn't efficient, somebody would change it. And once you take all transaction costs into account, 
things are relatively efficient and trying to figure out on what margins you can really have an impact is actually, I think, quite difficult. There are certainly some margins you can, but it's hard to identify them and hard to actually get deep enough to have an impact. So I think as, as to the disagreement, just I think it's mostly over strategy as well as a little bit over content. Peter wants to push the boundaries of governance a little bit more. And my recommendation is generally not to try that till the second or third generation of charter cities. The first generation, you want to be uh, relatively conservative in the types of governance you are adopting. And you mentioned in past, you know, you've grown up in sort of government circles, so it gives you the ability to quote unquote speak bureaucrat. What does that mean tangibly in terms of what skill set do you have that maybe, you know, Peter, as you just mentioned, might not, or people who worked at PayPal, et cetera, might not, the Silicon Valley? So I think, right, the primary barriers to charter cities have until now and probably until a year or two from now are political. And so to be able to, and and what that means is that in a lot of low and middle-income countries, the people who are the senior government advisors, they tend to be World Bank types. They tend to be like IMF types, McKinsey types. And so to convince them that this project, that charter cities are a good idea, I think you need to be able to present the content, like you need the content as well as the presentation to be in a manner that they understand. And that is something that's quite important. And I think something that the sort of Silicon Valley aspect of um, like techno libertarian aspect wing of the the space has been unable to do so. And so uh, being able to go to the World Bank and discuss these ideas with them in a manner that they understand and they appreciate is, is quite important, and, and that's something that I haven't really seen much success from in the in, in certain areas of, of, of the space. Okay. And what about, you mentioned a little bit, your work with Glenn. Where, where do you and Glenn Wilde differ? Um, I'm more conservative than he is, right? Like, I'm a Hayekian and a Burkean. I think his ideas are great, and I think I like them because, one, they're big, and I think, right, over the last 10 years, we've seen in at least business people thinking big in terms of technology. I don't think we've seen really people thinking big in terms of politics yet. The biggest thinker recently is arguably Donald Trump, but he's thinking big in a very reactionary manner where his big ideas are, let's just go back to, I don't know, 1920s immigration policies. And Glenn is thinking big politically, but in a, I think, much more interesting manner and has managed to coalesce a group of extremely interesting people around those ideas. And that's that's what I like. And the, the harbor attacks, I think it's very interesting because it's the strongest challenge to freehold notions of property. Even Peter Thiel, I don't think, has uh, substantive challenges to right, what are Western forms of social organization? He wants less government, but beyond wanting less government, there aren't really that many, I think, meaningful challenges there. While the Harburger tax, I think, is a meaningful challenge and deserves to be taken very seriously. As to where we differ, right, I'm, I'm a Hayekian, a Burkean, I think radical social change often can lead to substantial social unrest. And for that reason, it should be approached relatively carefully. My recommendations are generally to experiment iterate and scale. And you don't want to, lots of times people do the scaling before the successful experimentation and iteration. And that's when you see a lot of this, uh, right, like historically tragedies occur because people think they've developed the right social system and try to impose it on everybody. And then you get mass social unrest and in worst case scenarios, famines, 
which I think is obviously not going to happen with Glenn's ideas. But you still want to be um, relatively careful and responsible in terms of what it means to to scale different forms of social organization that have a that 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 aren't really according with our set of traditions and norms and have a strong distributional effect of, of property ownership. If you're a Hayekian or Burkean, uh, who are sort of the left versions of that? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there are. I, I'm, one, I'm just not nearly as well read on the left as I should be, and I should try to change that. Um, I don't have as much time to read as I used to. I don't know. I would be interested to read if there if your listeners have recommendations people on the left who have these recommendations who have ideas about social change and and how to implement that and and what that looks like but i and I'm, I'm not sure i have a sufficiently deep understanding of uh I, like some of them Keynes is 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 quite interesting but yeah i mean i've read like i consider myself on certain margins of Rawlsian, but in terms of um, a deep enough understanding of intellectual traditions on the left to have uh, analogous figures to Burke and Hayek. I don't really know. How about Balaji? Um, I wouldn't consider him on the left. Um, as to what I agree with him on, I generally agree with him on the increasing importance of alternate forms of governance, of the increasingly challenges in the dysfunction of the existing forms of governance and the need for improvement. I disagree with him, I think, a little bit on strategy. His strategy is a lot more aggressive than mine. I also think I probably disagree with him on he's focusing a lot more on the frontier of pushing the frontier of institutions. Most of my focus is on catch-up growth. I want to start having a little bit more focus on pushing the frontier but that's something that we don't currently have capacity for. And I think he's, I mean, he's very smart. He's smarter than me, so I don't want to bet against him. But I, I think he might be a little bit too early for some of his ideas. And so he'll have a more difficulty gaining traction than he hopes. What, what about the, uh, the internet, sort of Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex or, or what you what you know or understand or read from? Sure. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of Scott Alexander and the, the rationality community broadly. I think that's, generally the right approach to ideas and to problems. If I read Scott Alexander on an issue, I'm generally satisfied that this is an objective understanding of that issue. I mean, certain times you can see his bias seep through, but it's relatively rare and there aren't many people or institutions who I can say that for and sort of trust that if they say that they're going to basically review the relevant literature on a subject and dispute it or and report it impartially than they'll do so and with Scott I think you can as to where I disagree with him I think that the risk of the rationality community and sort of this engineering mindset is that you can get everything you need from first principles when in reality that's just not how it works I think understanding how right like social norms culture evolves and how interdependent and mixed these things are is necessary and you can't just reason from first principles. Oftentimes it leads you down these pathways where from the beginning, if you sort of see the conclusion, it sounds absurd, but because you reason through it and you get there, you don't really see that on each step you do, you take sort of this marginal divergence just because of the way you're formulating the ideas. And I think the, the Scott and the rationality community 
are a little bit at risk of this, I guess, what Hayek would call a constructivist approach. And that makes it means that for certain things, I'm not sure I would, they, they wouldn't be the first people I approach in terms of, right, like social understanding and recommendations for how to build a charter city. Right. What about uh, Henry George? Um, I think Henry George is very underrated. His land value tax is the, as Milton Friedman said, it's the worst tax, but it's better than all the others, or it's the least bad tax because it is, uh, land is, it, there's a fixed supply. So usually if you tax something, you get less, but you can't really get less land. So it's it's a fixed supply. You're basically taxing a, a positive externality because the, the value of land is usually the value of all of the adjacent amenities to that land. And so if you set up a tax system right, there's no deadweight loss, uh, a land value tax system correctly, there's no deadweight loss. Uh, Henry George is also a very eloquent defender of free trade. As to where I disagree with him, I think his notion of land was a little bit restrictive. Land is more than just physical land. It can be imagined as, I mean, broadband spectrum of natural resources. One thing I like about uh, Glenn Weil is that he's sort of a modern Georgist in those respects. Two, Henry George was, I think, overly optimistic on what a land value tax could do. On one hand, he's a political economist, and that's the part of him I like. On the other hand, he's, I don't know what to call it, but a ideologue maybe, where he basically says that implementing a land value tax will solve all of society's ills. And while I think it will solve some, it's not certainly not going to solve all. I mean, anybody who sort of says that this is the way the utopia is almost certainly selling snake oil. And then I think modern Georgists, the same way that you have sort of with semi-marginal figures, you see this in the in the Austrian space as well to a certain extent, is that there becomes a core set of followers who interpret very dogmatically the teachings of the masters and then don't really engage with a larger audience, but instead have this uh, very in-group, uh, like revert to the original text, understand the original meaning. And I think that's happened with a lot of Georgists unfortunately, because there are a lot of things to be learned from Georgism and the the current people who claim the mantle of Georgism have made it not as appealing as it could be. What about Spencer uh, Heath and Spencer McCollum? Spencer Heath and Spencer McCollum are interesting figures. Spencer McCollum is the guy mentioned in Mexico who um, helped get me into these ideas. His grandfather, Spencer Heath, he was an industrialist during World War One, and got rich. He was a Georgist, got kicked out of Georgism because he was advocating. Henry George said there's a single value tax and the government should administrate it. Spencer Heath said, okay, but why have a government? Why not just have a single like property owner with traditional notions of property where they're able to sell their, their use rights and a government can't really sell their use rights? They've been hugely influential in terms of thinking about how public goods can be provided in a manner that avoids some of the public choice challenges of most governments. Um, as to where I disagree, well, I think Spencer Heath and Spencer McCollum generally have strong ideas that are important and should be um, engaged with more deeply. They, they overstate the challenges of modern governments, and I think modern governments have done a reasonably good job about providing a lot of these public goods. And so I view charter cities much less as a sort of ideal form of government like Spencer Heath and Spencer McCollum did proprietary communities 
and I, I view charter cities as mostly as a political tool to get policies in places that otherwise would not be able to adopt them because of existing political constraints. Really? I want to move to sort of a series of grab bag topics a little bit. One is you wrote a post a couple of years ago, sort of talking about perhaps why Peter Thiel had had supported Donald Trump and some of the some of the reasons for for that. How do you think you know a few years later? How have your sort of thoughts evolved around around that topic? Mostly disappointed. I I mean the optimistic scenario hasn't particularly come to pass. Optimistic scenario was that Trump is a deal maker, so he might be able to cut a deal on immigration where he basically forgives a lot of the existing immigrants in the country, gives amnesty in exchange for some sort of wall. That looked possible, I think, about a year ago, and now it looks very unlikely. On foreign policy, Trump is arguably doing okay. I mean, he hasn't gotten any really stupid wars like Iraq or Libya. And I'm a little bit marginally optimistic on North Korea in terms of it looks as though North and South Korea are making overtures at friendship. And I think that's to a large extent because of Trump. And then two, if it's possible to turn North Korea into an American client state instead of a Chinese, that's also sort of beneficial. There haven't been, I would have hoped that Peter would have been able to appoint more Silicon Valley figures in the administration. He did uh, Jim O'Neill and Balaji uh, Srinivasan, both of their names were voted as FDA commissioner. Neither of them were selected. Instead, it was, I believe his name is Scott McClellan. And Scott seems to be doing a very good job. Um, I think Jim or Balaji arguably would have done better, though they might have gotten ended up being gummed up in the um, uh, fighting the bureaucracy. So maybe they wouldn't because Scott seems to be able to work the bureaucracy quite well. And I mean, there has been some, the, the one, one of the few bright spots of the Trump administration has been tech policy, which has been influenced by a lot of uh, Mercatus folks, but it's unclear to what extent those were because of Peter Thiel or because of a different set of networks and relationships. So, I mean, in general, I think that even though he quote unquote won the bet by supporting Trump, I, I, I would have hoped that he would have been more effective in getting allies in the administration um, because it, it just seems to be a, a giant mess in most respects. You also wrote a post about the Vox for the Grey Tribe, although now that I'm saying that aloud, I wonder if Slate Star Codex is that. Yeah, I think, I think Slate Star Codex, Codex is that to an extent, um, but you basically need something that's more monetized and that has a wider range of issues. You're seeing that sort of come out in, um, you're seeing a, a host of interesting magazines that are trying to be that to a certain extent. I mean, the challenge with Fox, I like Fox on some margins, but you basically have this war going on in Fox between the activists and the, I guess, academics, um, where the academics try to be neutral and the activists really want to push things. And so I've just realized that, right, if Fox is reporting on something, sometimes it's quite interesting, but I can't really, they, they try to do like, re, we report the news and I often don't trust their co- conclusions because it's too much work to check who's writing it and to check what their reputation is. And Vox doesn't police that. So you do have all of this influx of reporting on supposedly scientific issues, but I feel fear that are just basically taking the side that are aligns with their pre-existing priors and not really examining it meaningfully. Um, and so I think there is still a potentially the opportunity, maybe I'm overestimating the sort of value of appealing to the Grey Tribe, of having a, a entity that reports on these issues. And you have some interesting projects. There was one 
forget what it's called, but it basically tweets all the news. It, it won't, it's a, I think it's a, it's a quarterly magazine that just reports on the news every quarter. And so it stays out a lot of the initial, right, the, the, the news cycles to just stay off whatever the hot, dumb topic of the day is and to have more meaningful dives. You have uh, another magazine that I'm quite fond of that's new is Palladium which is billing itself as the post-liberal magazine, which is tackling some of these international issues. It's not really trying to be right, like neutral in that sense, but it does have this quite interesting perspective of how we should view the new global order. I, 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 I think there is a lot of intellectual space to be had just because we're seeing the breakdown of traditional media as well as the breakdown of a lot of old institutions. So I think there's a thriving place for new ideas that if they can be presented in, in a manner that's, that's engaging, uh, that they, they can cover a lot of ground. Is Marginal Revolution a, a, a close example of that? Um, in, in certain ways. I mean, Marginal Revolution, it's, it's old, right? It started in 2003 before we really saw a lot of these breakdowns. I mean, maybe some of the fault lines were there. And it does... It's, it's not really trying to offer a unbiased perspective, right? Tyler wants to offer the contrarian perspective that nobody else will. But it, it is, I think it has probably increased in value, right? Tyler only really became Tyler within, I don't know, probably the last five or six years. And before then, he was, he, he, he didn't have the same profile that he does today. And so I think that is a potentially any example of successfully taking advantage of the new media landscape and translating that into a, a higher profile. So, so I, I, I think that is, that is an example of it. Right. And what do you think led to that higher profile, by the way? Was it co-signing of Peter Thiel or Mark Andreessen or what sort of led to that transition? I'm not sure. I think it was, um, I mean, he was always big, right? There was a thriving econ blogosphere in the late nine, in the, in the late 2000s. And Marginal Revolution was definitely part of that. And you've seen a lot of those people in the blogosphere go on. For example, Megan McArdle was sort of like to, sort of, to a certain extent part of that, and now she's at uh, Bloomberg. And so Tyler, um, but you've seen other people like Brad DeLong who were part of that, who his profile has now, I think, largely diminished. Um, Paul Krugman, I mean, he won the Nobel Prize, so he basically was uh, right, can, can ride that for the rest of his life. I, I think it was partially that, and partially um, being able to, I, I, I think his, um, I guess, brand is more scalable. Like Megan McArdle's brand is, um, she does a, I don't know, bi-weekly column and with 800 words, 1,000 words. Well, Tyler Cowen does three posts a day of 50 words of 100 words. And then two, Tyler is, right, he frequently publishes books and then has this relatively broad set of adaptable interests such that he can relatively stay one or two steps ahead of what the zeitgeist is and be able to be a cultural influencer in that sense. And so I think it's, it's, it's those things. I mean, the co-signing of Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel certainly helped and, and right, becoming influential in Silicon Valley. But I think he would only did that um, because of sort of his unique and, and scalable brand and approach to things. Totally. Last question. What did you take from uh, the three-body problem? Um, many things. One, China is a lot more open than I thought it was. I had sort of implicitly assumed that 
there was large censorship of the cultural revolution. So I was quite surprised to read the three body problem and see, oh, they're talking about um, the cultural revolution in, right, like in showing how horrible it was. Two, it, I think, is a interesting Straussian read because I forget the name of the aliens in there, uh, but the aliens are basically, right, they are, they, they don't advance very quickly at all because they have this closed political system. And so that can be read as a critique of right, Chinese culture that didn't advance for thousands of years because of their closed political system and sort of an endorsement of American-style democracy. Three, it also shows this importance of definite optimism to the extent that China over the last right, 30, 40 years has seen huge growth in material progress. While the U.S. over the last 30, 40 years, we basically uh, developed cooler ways to, to move around bits. But we've done a lot of interesting things um, with, with computers. Uh, we haven't actually seen, right, if you go into a home from 40 years ago, it looks quite similar to a home now. When if from, right, like 1990 to 1940, you, the, the difference in homes was just monumental in terms of cars, in terms of indoor plumbing, in terms of kitchens. And so over the last 40 years in the U.S., we just haven't seen that much. And as a result, the, the, the science fiction in the U.S., science fiction tends to take the last 10 years of a society and then just assume that trend continues like 30, 40 years into the future. So the U.S., it's all cyberpunk dystopias. Well, in China, the three-body problem shows, okay, here's a culture that has seen a great deal of material progress over the last 40 years, and now is imagining that this material progress continues into space, into these things, which we haven't really seen in depth in some of the, the, the popular culture in the U.S. in the last few generations. And so using that as sort of a a mirror of cultures and how to understand them, I think is, shows uh, a lot of work that the U.S. has to do in terms of thinking big and, and, and being able to execute on some of these large projects. I think it's a great way to, to wrap. For, for people who are fascinated to learn more about your work and follow you, where can you point them to and what should they stay tuned for? Um, so we have a, a Facebook page, Innovative Governance, a Twitter handle, Innovative Governance. My personal Twitter handle is Mark Lutter. Our website is innovativegovernance.org. We have a newsletter from there. And so we stay tuned to read up on the latest in charter cities in innovative governance and to will soon, probably within the next few months, start sort of hopefully being able to discuss some more of the work that we're doing on the ground uh, publicly. And you can stay tuned to, to hear about that. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much. This has been a great episode. Uh, thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 